Hi, everyone. As you can tell, I'm not Freddy. You guys can have a seat. And um, yeah, I might have better hair than him, but clearly I'm not him, so it's a little different today. But we're going to be still preaching the word, so we're going to be in the, in the word of the book of Hebrews. So you guys can turn there. Uh, first, I'll quickly pray for us. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, most of all, for salvation in your son. We pray that we would see him as high and lifted up today. Would you be with us? Amen. So there is this famous photo of JFK and his son, and he is underneath the table, and he's there just playing around. It's his playground. He doesn't really understand what's going on. His father is, of course, the president of the United States. This is the Oval Office, and there's a lot of important things that happen in this room, and yet he is very unaware of what is going on. He doesn't really comprehend. He'll, there's stories of him running down the hallway, and he'll be you know, saying hi to the vice president, or he'll be talking with some, you know, go by some chief of staff or some military leader as they're talking about you know, some Cold War situation. And he just runs past because he knows his father loves him. So they're there talking about Cold War, USSR, are they going to shoot the nukes? Should we preemptively shoot it first? All these important decisions. And he's there not really understanding the weight of things. And this is the issue in the book of Hebrews today. Uh, the audience, they know Jesus, they've heard of him, but they don't really understand all of who he is, this full weight of his identity. And so I think this is our problem as well. Though in our text, they have an issue with thinking too highly of angels. We might not have that problem. But we uh, have a problem where we don't think too highly of Jesus. What I mean is we'll say it, but we don't really mean it in our lives. We'll want to control our, our, our situations about finding a spouse or a job. We want to control the circumstances. We think that's our problem. That's what we need to work on. I need to like, find a good Christian spouse. I need to get a good little job. Or we might think our, our problem is that sin problem that we have, and so I, wanna, I, need a, I need to rally up enough gumption in myself to finally kick this sin, to finally get rid of lust, pride, lying, whatever this is. But the answer to all these questions isn't in you, but found in Jesus. The big idea is that Jesus is supreme, that what happens is we have such a small view of Jesus and that is our problem, not the situations, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. A high view of Jesus is what will help redirect us and allow us to persevere in hardship, in questions. And so that is our, what we're going to walk through today. We'll see this through two main points, how Jesus is God, and then Jesus is the Christ. And the hope is then that we'll walk away with a greater view of who Jesus is, and this will be able to sustain us through whatever we endure. So let's turn there now. Jesus is God. This is verses 1 to 4. Uh, so we'll start in just verses 1 to 2. It says, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers, or to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is the intro to the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, and God is speaking here in the past through prophets, but now, in the last days, has spoken through his son. There's this contrast going on. 
The prophets have spoken over thousands of years about who God is. And yet now he has come and he has spoken in and through his son. And so over these thousand years, they have spoken. But the book of Hebrews is going to show us that over all this time, they've actually been speaking not necessarily uh, any, a different story, but they've actually been talking about the son that has come. And therefore, all of the scripture is actually about Jesus, about the son. He is not just a greater prophet than all of them, but he is greater than all that has come before, and everything actually points toward who he is. And so this will be how the book of Hebrews starts and continues throughout. So for like a little teaser, it'll show that Jesus is greater than Moses. He has given a greater word. Moses gave the law. Jesus gives the gospel that can free us. Jesus is a greater tabernacle where God dwells in him. Jesus is a greater high priest. Jesus is a greater sacrifice, and on and on it will go as we go through this book. The author has a very high view of Jesus, and he will use all he can to push us towards this, to say, this is who you should be looking at, not just merely a man, but he is God. Because the audience, they have kind of seen Jesus lower. They have this depiction of him as a man, or maybe a little bit higher elevated, but he is not uh, God, they've forgotten this. They actually see angels as kind of greater. They have this kind of distortion going on, which is kind of odd for us. We're like, okay, Jesus is greater than angels. Well, of course. Um, we don't really think about angels much. And I think that's probably a good thing. They're not really talked about in the Bible a lot uh, for a good reason, that God doesn't seem to think that's important, that we know a lot about angels. But there is this kind of this, this uh, tradition at this time to understand through Deuteronomy 33.2 that Angels were the ones that brought the law to Moses. So therefore, if Jesus brought a word, that's great, but are angels not greater than men? So therefore, maybe we should look back on the law that we got, because it was from angels. So they're caught up in this idea, and it's pulling them away. But uh, the author is here to say no, and there's many ways in which he does this. First, he will talk about uh, this kind of opening, and then we have the next section, which we'll read, which will talk about this kind of sevenfold claim about who Jesus is. It is seven statements that point to who Jesus is and his greatness compared to angels. So I'll, just to a point, I'll, I'll use Jesus and the Son interchangeably. There's a lot of sonship language here, but in the next chapter, which is not our text for tonight, explicitly says that the Lord is Jesus, and so we'll just kind of interchange those as we go along. So just for your reference. But let us now read the next section. We have prophets and Jesus, the Son. The Son is greater than the prophets. And now he says, how is the Son been revealed to us? In verse 2b, the second half, says that God uh, has appointed the heir of him, the Son, heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this is a lot of big claims here. And there's seven of them. And I keep saying this because it's kind of a point. In Hebrew thought, seven was a number of kind of completion, fullness, perfection. 
So this claim is a full or a complete, a perfect representation of who Jesus is. It's not just like, oh, this is just my opinion. He's like, no, no, he's emphasizing this is the answer. Jesus, this is who he is, his full identity, a full or complete picture. And then we'll see this is kind of the first section, one to four. And he's a sevenfold claim. And then actually the evidence will be a seven as well. There'll be evidence of seven claims or seven references from the scriptures that point and prove his point. Uh, his claim. So his claim, and then he'll have all his evidence. So we'll get into that later. There's actual even more going on here. So there's a chiasm, which should be coming on that screen. This is kind of a literary device. So what is chiasm? It's a weird word. Well, you know, we have sim symbols, and we have, you know, uh, alliteration, we have metaphors, we have all these ways in when we write or when we talk to kind of emphasize different things. Well, chiasm is, is just that in the Hebrew thinking. And so it is supposed to pinpoint, as you can see, a little arrow going on, to the main center. So this is his form. His seven main points are the, the gold here. And so the whole opening structure is the beginning, one, Jesus and the prophets, and Jesus greater than the prophets. And then the thesis for our section is that he's greater than angels. So opening chapter is talking about angels. So that's kind of the bottom here, and they kind of reflect each other because he's greater than angels. So we have these two comparisons, and they mimic each other. So the chiasm then, it has these opening ends, or book ends, and they kind of go in, but they all mimic each other. So if you can see little numbers or letters, A, and then A at the bottom, and then B, C, D, and then goes back outwards. So why is this important is because this is what he's using to argue his point even more. He's saying it's not just a seven-fold argument that is complete and full, but it actually points to the center of it being his big claim. So let's walk through these seven uh, fold points, and we'll kind of leave it up there and walk through it quickly. So there we have the, the outer side, the opening, and the ending. And then we have these seven statements. The first two are God in relation to the Son. So it says that God appointed the Son, heir of all things, and then God created the world through the Son. So one of these relates to Jesus being the inheritor or heir of all things, so he reigns over everything. And the second one is that he also created everything. So it doesn't just reign over thing like a ruler, like a, a human ruler, but he's also a creator God. So he's the first two in B and C. And then he gets at the core here, where he says, you know what? This isn't just, he's not just this, but he's also exactly God. He words it this way. The sun is the radiance of the glory of God. The sun is exact imprint of God's nature. This is the center of the arrow. This is the focus of his thought that he's going to be proving. And that's why I thought it was important to kind of put it up there. Like, this is how he's formatting it. It's not just that it's a complete sevenfold, but he's like, no, no. I want you to get it at the core of this. You guys are thinking way too low about Jesus. He's not merely a man. He actually is God. And why I say that is because of how this wording is phrased. There is a, a Roman seal. It's kind of this connection of Jesus being the exact imprint of God. So it's a picture of a Roman seal, and it kind of imprints into the wax or the clay. And if you kind of look, it's, if you can see it in the purple there, but it is the exact same as the signet ring, right? So this kind of makes sense. But this is the, the language that he's speaking of, that Jesus isn't just kind of slightly below God, or he's not just you know, below angels or above angels, but he is the same imprint or the exact same as the Father, as God. And so we have this exactness going on. Uh, there is kind of this language gets 
adopted in our early creeds in Christianity by the same substance, so he's exact same. This gets to this glory language as well. So there's God's glory and then the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. So it's not that there is like a lesser glory from the radiance, but there's a glory and then just Jesus has been sent to us and so his radiation or is the same glory, it's just kind of closer. The exact same is this imagery. And so Jesus is the exact same imprint of God's nature. He is fully God. This is the author of Hebrews' big push on us. And he will continue this throughout the whole book. So this is his big kind of big claim. This is who he is. And therefore, we kind of work out from the chiasm after this to kind of reflect. It says in the fifth statement is that uh, the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. So everything was created through the Son, and then this is the mimic where he upholds everything. So he doesn't, wasn't just, God did not just create everything through the Son, but the Son also upholds everything by the word of his power. Just like in Genesis, God spoke and the world came to be. Now the Son, Jesus, upholds everything by the very word of his power in the exact same way. And then if we kind of go out chiasm a little more, there's this connection uh, there's this claim, the son made purification for sins, is the sixth claim, and in doing so, he sat down at the right hand of the father, or the, um, of the majesty on high, is the wording. And so this is the other claim, that God has set him as heir over all things, and this is now him sitting down. This is the completion of that heir, that he is now reigning as the heir. So all this structuring is emphasizing that he is God, and he is unique. He's not just uh, another prophet. He is not just an angel. He is God himself. Therefore, he is superior to the angels, which gets at the thesis, because his name is more excellent than them. So why all these statements? As we noted, the audience seems to be confused and misguided about Jesus. And maybe you are. You're like JFK's son. You don't really understand. You know Jesus loves you. You've heard this before. We don't really understand the full weight of who he is. Well, welcome here. Come, learn, study, get in a small group. We love to talk to you about who Jesus is and how, how, how great he is, what he's all done for us, and how our whole lives are around him. And this might be some other of you that have kind of lost sight of who Jesus is. You, you know Jesus, you grew up knowing him, and yet, you, yeah, you, don't, you really don't live in light of him. You think about it, you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't make him the center of my life. I think of it kind of like a telescope. We claim that, yeah, Jesus is God. I want to worship and glorify him. But I have the telescope turned around. And so when I look through, I see him as small. And therefore, I don't live in light of him, right? I don't, why would I want to read his word if he's small to me? Why would I want to actually tell people about him if he's small to me? And so we have people like the author to the Hebrews that are going to try to turn this around for us, turn the telescope around, help us to see that God is, or Jesus is God, that he is who he said he is. He's not merely a man. He's not merely someone who brought a good message. So with this understanding, we have many scriptures like this. The Hebrews is just one of them. He's realigning our telescope, and he does this through uh, all this literary devices, which can seem really nerdy, but there's more. So he doesn't have just the seven. He has seven evidences, as we said, seven claims. But he doesn't just stop there. He has uh, seven references from the Old Testament, but they're actually spanning all of it. So he's saying all of the scriptures point to Jesus. I say this because 
there's three sections of the Hebrew Bible. So in our Bibles, we have the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses. Then we have kind of our, our history books. We have our minor prophets, major prophets. We have um, the wisdom literature. But in Hebrew thought, there's only three. So there's this, they're all the same, but they're just different ordering. So there is the, the Torah or the instruction, the book of Moses. And then there is the prophets. And then there are the writings. And so there is five quotes from the writings that will be here, all from the Psalms, which kind of represents the book, of, or the writings. It's the first book, and it's the biggest. And then, instead of just quoting from all of the Psalms, he actually quotes one from the law and then one from the prophets. And I say this intentionally because even the ones where he quotes from the law and the prophets, there's actually similar ones in the writings that he could have quoted, but he intentionally phrases it to quote from that one, from that reference, not the one in the writings, so that he makes sure he's, exp he's spanning all of the scriptures. It's not just that there's a sevenfold perfect claim that he's, he's claiming, but also that there's a sevenfold evidence that is all of the scriptures. So all the scriptures point to Jesus. So as the prophets are, are uh, revealed God and, and Jesus fully reveals God, these prophets actually, all of their writings point to Jesus. And I don't just bring this up because it's nerdy and I like it, which I do, but, and it's not just that the Hebrew author is trying to show off here. What I'm trying to emphasize that is his whole thinking is surrounded by Jesus. Right? Even the way he writes is like, okay, I want to center in, show him how great he is to these people. They've lost sight. I want to encourage them. And his thinking, his actions, his desires are all around Christ. Jesus is his everything. Is Jesus your everything? Or do you merely live for yourself? Paul puts it in a different way in Philippians 1.21. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. His whole life is Christ, and to die is gain. Take this world, give me Jesus. I will return to him. This is how he thinks. This is how the author of Hebrews thinks. A few years ago, I was on a prayer team, for young adults, we would come, and I, I live kind of somewhat far away in Yarrow, and so I drove out. They, their place was in Mount Lehman, so a little farther from me. And I was like, sure, I should, I should go to this prayer group. Uh, I like prayer. This is good for me. And I went, and uh, there was this one girl. She's very genuine, very sweet, and she kind of annoyed me. Uh, it wasn't that she was annoying. She was actually really nice, and it wasn't that she was trying to be disrespectful for anything, but her love for Jesus was just so genuine it exposed me. I realized that I didn't really have Jesus in my life. I didn't really love him as I said I did. Yes, I came to prayer group, but I, I kind of went kind of like, oh, I should go. That's partly some of my reasoning. And then when I went and I saw her, and I was like, man, she, she gets it. Jesus was her everything. And so she wasn't any smarter or raised any differently than me, but she just understood who Jesus was. And the rightful response was worship. She would ask that, oh, that I would see him as greater. That would be her prayer request. I'd be asking about, you know, I'm going to feel good that day or to um, do better on my exam or something, which are good things to pray for, and the Lord cares for those. But her prayers are always about, like, I need to see more of Jesus. I want to love him more. And I'm like, who are you? Uh, but as the Lord convicted me, uh, you know, I wasn't actually annoyed at her. I was annoyed at myself and this exposure. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is it. This is, 
This is what we need. This is the rightful response for who Jesus is. As the Hebrew author has pointed to it with the chiasm, with the sevenfold statement, he is God. And the rightful response is to worship him. To have all your thinking, all your actions, all your feeling, your emotion, to be around him and for him. And yet, a lot of us don't feel that way. So how do we do this? We can surround ourselves with people like my friend or like the author of the Hebrews, we can go to a small group, we can go to church and hear sermons, and these are good things. But in the end, uh, it's the Holy Spirit who does this. God has to do this in us. So we have to ask that he would change us, that he would open our eyes to see how great Christ is. This is why the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus sent him, and he said that he will convict the world of sin, he will show Jesus as great. So we need to ask that he would do this for us, that we would be able to have this sevenfold way of thinking that, yeah, this is complete identity of Jesus, and I want to live and form even the way I write, the way I talk to people around who he is, that Jesus is my everything. So let us go to him in worship. And then our second point will be now looking at these seven statements. So we saw his big claim about Jesus, sevenfold claim, his full, complete claim about Jesus' identity. And now let's look at the evidence he has. And this we'll see that Jesus is the Christ. So we'll read back in Hebrews 1, 5 to 9. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, quote, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings a firstborn into the world, he says, quote, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, quote, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, quote, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's a lot of heavy language today, a lot of high Christology, so who is this Christ, right? What does Christ mean? Uh, you saw it in verse 9 there, anointed one. That's the literal translation of what Christ means, or Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew, Christ is the Greek, and we just alliterize it, or we anglicize it, sorry. But what it literally means is just anointed one. And this was for kings and for priests. You would not crown your kings in an Israelite uh, nation, but you would, you, would oil, you would anoint them with oil. And you would also anoint your high priest with oil. Uh, what is oil? Well, it's this concentrated energy or all the life force, all the nutrients of the olive. Or if you think of fruit, it's the concentration, all the sugars, all the energy, all the nutrients of that fruit. And so there's a connection here to Eden that we can't get into, but the idea here is God is pouring out his life, his energy, himself onto this person to fulfill this role of a king or a priest. With a priest, we can kind of get the idea, okay, they're supposed to represent themselves to God and God, uh, God to the people. So they're a heaven and earth person or place where God can, through them, explain who God is and we can bring ourselves to God and God will accept us. Uh, but with the king is anointing because they're supposed to be Bible nerds. All the kings are supposed to have their own version of the Bible. They're supposed to study it and know it, memorize it on day and night. They're supposed to be like the author of the Hebrews, where all of their thinking is around God and who he is and how they can live uh, in light of him and what he has done for them. So when they ruled, when they ran the kingdom, the idea was that they are 
representing God well. They know his ways. They've memorized it. They know him. And therefore, they can rule and reign like God and for God. And so this is what anointed one was, someone who represented God to the people, ruled like God, they would serve the people like God serves. And this is the idea here. So when you guys think of someone being anointed with oil, often our image will come to mind to David. So if you remember, uh, Samuel comes and he wants to, I'm going to make one of your sons king to Jesse, and he's all his sons out there. Oh, there's none of these. God says none of them. Well, there's this little kid in, in the field, and it's David. Okay, bring him. And when David brings, and the Lord tells Samuel, this is the one, anoint him. So his head is anointed with oil, and he is set to be the king, to be this unique one that would represent God and rule over the nation. And David, uh, as he grows and becomes this, this king, he actually has this moment where he is so full of joy for the Lord. He is, knows his ways, and he is bringing up the ark, God's presence, into Jerusalem. And he is singing and dancing and laying sacrifices like a priest. He's wearing a linen, a fod, or a, a big kind of overcoat that the priest would wear. And he's asking, acting like a priest, representing God to the people and the people to God. And yet he fails, right? David has all his sins and his son fails as well. And so this understanding as the years went on was all these texts that we'll kind of get to that talk about this coming anointed one aren't a simple human. They're unique. They're different. It's not David. It wasn't David's son, Solomon. There's lots of claims in these texts that are about the son, and so they partly are fulfilled in Solomon. But people understood this is not what we're waiting for. We're waiting for a unique one, someone who's fully anointed by God, who lives perfectly God's ways and can represent him to us. So this is who this anointed one is. So now let's kind of get into some of the texts. We can't go through all of them. But the first one here he quotes is from Psalm 2, 7. But for his audience, like if I say, you know, lyric to a song, you guys would think of the whole song. Or if I talk about a movie, then you guys would think of the movie. Here, when you kind of reference a verse, they would kind of think of the whole psalm. And so let's read through parts of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 1 to 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then in the section that he quotes from, 6 to 8, it says, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The psalm starts off noting that the world is against God, and not only against God, but against his unique anointed one. And 6 to 8, where he quotes from, makes it clear that this is not merely just any son, but one who will inherit the whole earth. David didn't get this. Solomon didn't get this. And so there's this thinking here, ah, yes, this is that anointed one to come, who will gain it all and gain all the inheritance. You guys kind of remember back to the sevenfold claim. There was a two actions of God, and one was in relation to the Son. He makes him heir of all things. So here, the heritage is all the earth. So here's this connection going on. And so he's now backing up this claim with the evidence. And we see in verse 12 of Psalm 2, it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So once again, this son is not just a ruler over all, but he judges all. 
So when he's making this reference, the whole psalm comes to mind, and the people realize, ah, this is what he's talking about, this special anointed one. He's connecting it to the Son, to Jesus. And so here we have this reference to that if you are blessed, if you're blessed if you take refuge in Jesus, in the Son, and you get all, you get part of the heritage, you get the blessings of it. But if you reject him, you get his wrath. This is what God does. He judges. So again, his evidence is pointing that Jesus is God. Building all this, there's four other quotes, which we don't have time to get into. But then he, the, but the main idea of them is the same connection to the Christ, to the anointed one. That this anointed one they've been waiting for, this is him. This is Jesus. He is this special one, this human one who will rule over all, who gain the inheritance of everything. But yet, uh, as we noted before, Hebrews is not, the author of Hebrews, is not content at just seeing Jesus as a mere man, as this glorified human one that rules, but also that he is God. And this is kind of his sixth quote. So we get to Hebrews uh, 1, 10 to 12, and it reads, And you, the Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up, like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is a quote from Psalm 102, 25 to 27. And here, in addition to the evidence that Jesus is the Christ, or the special anointed one, here, this is God as creator. The Lord here can do whatever he wants with creation. He can roll it up, and yet he will remain, and creation will not. Mountains that we think will be here forever, they won't be. But Jesus will. He will Sustain. His years will have no end. This is language of God as creator, as sustainer of all things. So we have these two claims going on. Back in a several-fold statement, we had all these statements about Jesus being God. Now we have Jesus being the Christ, and this, Jesus being God. So he is fully God and fully man, which with the creeds, there's this reference of hypostatic union, that he is the same substance of God, yet he is fully man. He's the same person. And there's no good analogy with this, but what I thought of was kind of the, the movie The Incredibles. You know how they have superpowers, and they're going out, and they have this very, it's very kind of set in the movie that, nope, we have a normal son. Jack-Jack doesn't have powers. Throughout the whole movie, Jack doesn't have powers. Don't worry about it. We'll get him a normal human, you know, uh, daycare, and he'll, he'll be fine. But by the end of the movie, obviously not a surprise to us, he actually does have powers. And so he actually saves the day. The villain does not get away. Jack-Jack saves the day. And so this is kind of my depiction that, that Christ is not just a human, but he is God, a very God. God has come down in the, the person of Jesus Christ to live and fulfill all of this. All of this points to him. This is who he is. And the cool thing is, the seventh quote kind of ties these together. Jesus being God, Jesus being man, so we get all nerdy again, the seventh statement. And it says in verse 13 of Hebrews 1, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So here, like angels, they're servants. They serve this king, and they serve those who will inherit salvation. But what is the quote? Well, the quote in 13 is Psalm 110. And so this is the seventh quote and is full evidence, the sevenfold complete evidence ends here and it connects God, uh, Jesus being God and Jesus being Christ. And so let's read the first four verses of Psalm 110. It says, a psalm of David. And the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies 
your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So for the author to emphasize this text, he is saying that though he is David's son by human origins, he is uniquely the son of God. He is the Lord, David's Lord. And I get this because as you read the little title, it's a Psalm of David, so he's singing it or writing it down. But what is he speaking about? Not about himself. He speaks about his own Lord. So God, Yahweh, says to David's Lord to sit at his right hand. So this can't be just a mere human. This is uh, uh, lifted up a high one, but he's also ruling and reigning as God. So this is the connection of the two. And we also read here that the Lord has sworn that he would not change his mind, that this Lord of David's would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So unlike David, who wasn't really a priest, but there's kind of an imagery of him being one, representing people to, to God, there, this is the one we've been waiting for, this anointed one. He is the anointed priest and the anointed king in one. He is forever in this order of Melchizedek. Because he is also God, he can reign forever. He's not a human that will die, not a priest that will die, you have to get another one and another one. But here he's in order forever because as rising from the dead, Jesus reigns forever. He lives forevermore, and therefore he can sit down and be this ruling king priest. And so this final seventh quote brings to mind something we didn't really address in the chiasm. It's kind of didn't really fit in the form, and that was kind of on purpose. He's thinking this idea of how Jesus made purification for sins. And that's when he sat down. So we kind of think, like, oh, that didn't fit the chiasm. And now we're kind of coming back here that, oh, right, this psalm, Psalm 110, this kind of fulfilling of his, of his evidence, points to Jesus as also a priest. And so how does Jesus make, um, make a purification for sins? But that he uh, died on our behalf. So we read in, in Hebrews 10, 12 to 14, it says this later. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So same psalm quote. For by single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the same psalm clicks to mind, and he's using it here, and he's saying that this anointed one, this human, in Jesus' human life, he did not come to simply be an example. He did not come to simply rule as a human king over the, his inheritance. He did not come simply to fulfill the scriptures, though he does all these things. He has come also to redeem you and me. This high and lifted up, this glorious son of God came down to be a man, to suffer and die, to bring you to himself. Who, um, <clears throat> to be his inheritance and to gain his inheritance. And so he sat down, it says. That after making purification for sins, he sat down. This is completed as well. Like the argument, the sevenfold statement, this is Jesus' full, complete identity, and the sevenfold perfect argument or defense that proves this to be true. Jesus, after purifying for sins, he sat down. This is completed. It is just as assured just as assured as, as the author's argument and this understanding that Jesus has accomplished it, once and for all completed. He can sit and rule and reign. He's done. He's completed his task. 
Therefore, he rules. So in closing, if you feel exposed uh, of your sin, like I was, let that exposing bring you closer to Christ. Turn around, which is the literal word, or literal understanding of the word repent. Just turn around, turn, turn to Christ. He has completed it. He has uh, made purifications for sins, your sins and mine. He willingly, willingly wants to give you life. This is why he came. I would tell you to stop living for yourself. Why? Well, because you are not worthy to live for yourself. I'm not worthy to live for my job, for my friend, for a girlfriend, for the idea of being married one day, for the idea of having that perfect job. That is not worth living for. It will not sustain you. But Jesus will. Just like verse 4 said that Jesus' name is more excellent than all the angels, his name is more excellent than yours. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is God. And those of us who know him but have forgotten being exposed by the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus as God, as Christ, that he is the God-man, let this lead you to worship to your whole life. May we become like the author of Hebrews and think and speak in this way that highlights Jesus. Let us think about Jesus like Jesus. Let us act like him. Holy Spirit, help us do this. Let me end in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for sending Jesus, sending the Son to be the fulfillment of all the scriptures and to give us life, eternal life with you. Help us, Father. We cannot uh, see Jesus as we ought to by ourselves, by our own understanding. I cannot force myself to see Jesus as he really is. I need you to do that. So would you do that great work in and through us as we continue in this series, as we continue in song, as we come up for prayer, to just to ask, Lord, would you do this great work in me? I want to be more like you. I want to see you as you are. So I pray, Father, that you would do this, and I'm thankful that you will. Amen.